Welcome to Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski, the show that highlights and celebrates the kinetic and potential energy in classrooms across the globe and why it matters. We are heard nationally wherever fine podcasts are available and weekly on the radio at Charleston, South Carolina's 1250 WTMA Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. And you guessed it, our home base is Charleston, South Carolina. We also invite your questions and comments. You can visit www.thelearningring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-A-R-N-I-N-G-R-I-N-G.com, thelearningring.com. And uh, as always, Robin Berlinski, welcome to your show. Thank you. I would like to uh, just to quickly explain, how did you come up with thelearningring.com? Well, the learning ring is, uh, it closes the gap. There's a gap sometimes between the classroom and the after-school space. And so 180 cards on a ring and you close it and you've closed the gap. And now you've got all those standards in the after-school space. Very cool. So one of the things we're going to be talking about in this podcast is how you like to interact with the audience. And there's a, there's a whole thing going on behind the scenes. It's very cool. Explain to them how folks can interact with you. Okay. Um, interact with me. I would love to engage with listeners more on my Instagram page, which is The Learning Ring, and respond to the different questions and giveaways. We recently gave away a $50 Starbucks gift card to a listener who answered correctly where one of our guests had taught school. So there's lots of fun highlights and stories and giveaways, and we really want to engage with the listeners. So you don't want to miss any of that. And in addition, our Facebook page, The Learning Ring, I'd love listeners to comment there on what state they teach in. We're trying to get followers from all 50 states. So I would love everybody to check in there. And then lastly, um, the podcast, wherever you listen, if you could share that with your teacher friends. And if you know a teacher with great energy, please refer them to us at robin at com, so we can consider them being a guest on a future show. And we've had some great guests. Uh, we have. And have more on the docket uh, coming up, which we is do. very cool. So speaking of listeners, let's start the uh, festivities with a question from a listener. And I, I love that. I mean, these, these are really well-thought-out questions that we're getting, obviously, from fellow educators like yourself. Uh, here's the question. There are so many theories about how kids learn scripted versus non-scripted curriculum, phonics versus whole word reading lessons. In your experience, Robin, what is most effective? Wow. Loaded question. Um, so here's, here's my thought on that. If we think about it, if we look around the world right now and in the past, every decade has produced geniuses, inventors, entrepreneurs, artists, They've all impacted our world. I mean, look at what we've done just in the last you know, 30 years. So I believe there are many teaching, many different teaching methods that produce positive outcomes. Obviously, it's working. Um, pockets of great schools in different areas producing amazing graduates who move on and do great things. So I just want to start there by saying, you know, it, everything's working somewhere in different ways, but... Um, before I specifically answer that question, I do want to make a disclaimer because, you know, this show is really not about telling anyone or showing anyone which teaching methods are the best. I am not the expert for that. My, my reason for this is to expose the amazing experiences I've seen over 30 years and give you an insight 
into that so you can, or I can share what I've seen in my fifth and first grade classrooms, what I've witnessed working in different learning spaces, both at the Children's Museum and Engaging Creative Minds. So I just want to be, you know, clarifier here, like I love the question and I'm grateful they asked it to me, but not super, you know, duper the expert here. Fair enough. Yeah. But I do want to say this. If we go back, you know, 100 and 150 years, let's say, you know, education comes around again, just like fashion, you know, bell bottoms and halter tops, it's going to be new again. And I've seen that, you know, when you look back, let's say Albert Einstein, he had a theory of education based on reasoning and logic. I mean, he believed that education is not about learning facts, but thinking about ideas And I have this great quote from him that I love. He said, education is what remains after one has forgotten what one learned in school. And it's funny, but it's also very telling. He's all about learning by doing. And then John Dewey, who we learn about, those of us who are teachers, learn a lot about him in college. One of the most prominent American scholars in the first half of the 20th century was a leading proponent with what is today known as hands-on experiential learning. Like, we're looking at that as like a new great thing. And John Dewey, you know, back at the turn of the century was doing that. So, you know, we can look at it as a whole, but there are a lot of great things happening. Um, And I'm going to talk more about this, you know, throughout this conversation. You know, we're going to kind of answer this question throughout this whole podcast. But my big takeaway from Dewey is his four principles. And For educators who are in school right now, this is going to sound really familiar. Learning by doing or experiential learning, discussion, interaction, and interdisciplinary learning. All right, so you need to take these one at a time because remember, pretend I'm the person who knows nothing, which I don't. (laughs) Uh, I need to be educated on this. Let's take them one at a time. Learning by doing or experiential learning, if I pronounce that correctly. I think I get it, but... Tell me in your parlance what that means. So that's the Children's Museum right there. Yes. You dive right in and you experience the learning in a hands-on way. There are manipulatives. There are, you know, field trips. Anywhere where you are learning by doing is that approach. The, The discussion piece is a lot about, you know, teachers being open to questions and discussions and leading a topic down another road that might not be in the lesson plan, being open to students having questions. And instead of saying, we'll get back to that later, or that's not really what we're talking about today, they say, ooh, let's explore that. Let's talk about that. What do you think? So really having that approach to listening and, and having that conversation in the classroom. The interactive piece is a lot about what we talk about um, here in South Carolina, we have something known as the profile of the South Carolina graduate and collaboration, communication, critical thinking, and creativity are the four C's in there. That interactive piece is that, you know, don't we wish as adults, we all were better at interactive communication, social skills. Um, you know, that could be a whole other show in and of itself. And then interdisciplinary is really my favorite one. This is where, as a teacher, you take the learning and bring it into all the content areas. So maybe you're learning about the Civil War. Well, you break out a timeline and talk about math, and then you read something to to bring in some ELA, and then there's some science that you engage with about the Civil War. So it's all this interdisciplinary teaching that's really impactful. 
All right, now that you've given us the four, let me ask if if I got this correctly, for example. So the first one, learning by doing or experiential learning. If we look at a previous show with your friend, Dr. Tracy Hunter Doniger, she talked about the forest schools of Germany. Is that a good uh, example of learning by doing? That's a great example of learning by doing. I mean, that's the ultimate experience of learning by doing. That is not only learning by doing, but you are doing that in an immersive environment. So now it's not only the activity, because it's one thing to do something within a classroom. You still have the four walls and the fluorescent lights and the desks. But when you're out in a forest learning about things in an environment like that, that takes it to a whole other level. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's it's amazing. All right. I think next we're talking about some uh, scripted curriculum, which seems like it takes a lot of the, uh, I don't know, creativity out of what a teacher might be allowed to bring into the classroom. Is that a safe assessment? You nailed it. That's exactly it. Um, You know, it's interesting to me because scripted teaching can actually be traced back as far as 1888, where this couple, Samuel and Adeline Monroe, published text for teachers that gave them scripts for teaching reading readiness, phonics, and oral reading. I mean, 1888. And a lot of schools are going back to that. I'm seeing a lot of scripted curriculum coming back. And yeah, it's the teacher literally expecting expected to read the lesson scripts verbatim. I just, I, I can't imagine there's a lot of um, excitement or enthusiasm if you're doing that year after year after year. I mean, these are these are teachers that are probably not capable of bringing energy to the classroom anyway. I mean, as you do. And again, I don't want to speak poorly of people who are in a position where they have to use a scripted curriculum, but how do we avoid that? I mean, if you're in a school, are you mandated? I mean, again, this is me not knowing anything about your world. Do you go to some schools and they say, here's your curriculum, you must teach this just like this, you can't veer off, that's the way it is? Yeah, unfortunately, that that is true. Um, you know, I, I always tell my students when they're going out looking for a job and a new teaching um, a career, to really, you know, you're interviewing the, the administration as much as they're interviewing you. Each school, each district is so different. You really want to learn about that leadership and what they're requiring because if it doesn't fit, then you need to not go there. Like start early in the space that you, that you match. Um, back to your comment, though, about the creativity. You know, it's interesting because I agree with you. And yet, I, I talk to first and second year teachers who like the scripted curriculum because it's a crutch for them. Mm. They feel safe. It gives them, you know, that comfort when they go to bed at night, knowing they did the right thing. They didn't have to second guess themselves. They didn't miss something. And, and I understand that mentality. I, I think I had a different view of it until I talked to, that, to them. Now, it's not for me. I, I would, you know, lay down and die if somebody told me I had to read from a script. I, I would have to walk out. That's just not who I am. But I think it is a, a safety net for some, and maybe new teachers, it's, it's a comfort for them. So sure. I can see the positives. Well, let me veer off of our, our subject here for a second. You know, we talk about how this is a national show, and we are heard all over the country. What are you hearing from different parts of the country? Everybody has different learning styles. Everybody has different, uh, you know, curriculum. I guess uh, come from different environments. Is is the teaching profession 
really one huge global community or are there different factions? You know, tell us like what you're hearing out there in the big picture. Yeah, actually what I see in the conferences I go to, the networks I'm in, it seems to be the same in all the states. There's pockets, there's there's art schools in all states, and then there's the the Title One, there's high poverty, there's you know, the private schools. It seems like there's like an ecosystem of education that exists in, in all states. I learned recently, I was on a panel um, in Greenville, South Carolina, and I learned something I never knew, and um, I've not done the research on it, so I'm, I'm going to believe that it's true. Hawaii has one superintendent of schools. For the entire state? Yes. I need to research that more. Wow. But that was very interesting to me. So you look at the dynamics in each state and how it's run from you know, the state education agencies, which is your state department of ed, down to the local education agencies, which are the different districts, and then down to the schools. And it's like, again, a, a totally different ecosystem, but you see it really in all the states, the different types of teaching. That's fascinating. All right. So also with the states, uh, everybody has different uh, expectations and this is a confusing one to me. Again, I'm not an educator, but I'm asking it as if I were an audience member. Let's talk about reading. I know there are different levels of comprehension in kids that have seemingly been left behind and have different you know, abilities to read. Let's talk about this. Where are we as a state and a nation in reading? Yeah, here's, here's a little context on that. So um, I don't know if you remember, but back in 2014, the Read to Succeed Act was enacted. Stressed the importance of reading at every grade level. It was to ensure that every student is reading on grade level and graduates from, from high school with the reading and writing skills needed to be college and career ready. Well, that was 2014. So five years later, in 2019, the, the um, U.S. Nations Report Card reported that nearly two out of every three students in grades four and eight. So those two grade levels, they're tested in fourth grade and eighth grade. Nearly two out of three were not reading at a proficient level. Instead, they were reading at a basic level or they're functionally illiterate. Do you find that as appalling as I do? I do. And what's the reason? What's Where do you, where do you trace back? Is this parents? Is this teachers who don't care? Is the students who just aren't, you know, they're being moved ahead faster than they should? Uh, these are questions that I would ask. I hope yeah, they're right. I, I, they're great questions. And, you know, I have a small lens. Again, I'm in South Carolina and occasionally venture out into other states <laughs> for a week or oh, two. Good. But what, you know, if I had to, if I had to say what I think it is, the target keeps moving for these teachers. They get invested in a curriculum. They get invested in a method. They get trained in different techniques. They get excited about a certain you know, curriculum series, and then it changes the next year. There, And for many different reasons, maybe the leadership at the school changes and a principal comes from another state that says, guess what? We were doing this in you know, Michigan, and now we're going to do it here in Kansas because it worked in Michigan, and I'm so excited. Those teachers all have to, you know, pivot and and do something new, and that's scary. And that's a lot of you know learning and and trying by by you know failing and picking it up and trying again. And I think the students suffer for that sometimes. Well, they would seem to me. I mean, what about the teachers having to relearn and and refocus? You know, everything they've been doing all these years, now somebody else comes in and dictates a whole new direction. Why isn't there, 
again, silly question, maybe a national standard where all schools and all districts would have to follow the same rules and regulations. Yeah, there's a lot of policy academies and policy work being done. That would be that would be lovely. You know, there is the Common Core curriculum, which most of our states have. We don't have that here in South Carolina, but the majority of the states have adopted the core, Common Core. Um, so that gives you a curriculum that's standard. But to your point, there really isn't, you know, a policy standard for all states in education. And we right. probably do need something like that. In a minute, I'm going to ask you about whole language, but let's take okay. a moment here for you to tell us again how listeners can interact with you. It's very important uh, that everybody knows that we're not just here talking. We want feedback. Uh, Robin answers every email that comes in, and uh, you can certainly uh, contact her with a guest suggestion or show idea, and, and that's the beauty of it. This is really a show for everybody. So how do people yeah, get in touch definitely. with you? Several, several ways. Um, Instagram, follow The Learning Ring. Um, you can find me on Facebook, also The Learning Ring, and then share the podcast with your friends and um, follow the podcast so you know every time we drop one in, you'll, you'll be able to listen quickly. And then we always do want that feedback, Robin, at thelearningring.com. Because again, the best part of this podcast is when one of our guests does a shout out to their favorite teacher. I want to keep that positive energy going and learn more about what is working around the country. Well, I know that uh, you've asked every other guest who your favorite teacher was, and, and I mentioned that I have one I probably mentioned in a previous show. I don't remember. We've done so many, I don't remember. But I had a fifth grade teacher. I still remember to this day. And, you know, I'm up uh, a few years beyond uh, some people that the, the fact that I can remember that back that far. She was extraordinary. Isn't that and, amazing? And, and to this day, I remember what she looked like, what she taught us. And we did a lot of things that were way out of the ordinary. And that's the kind of stuff that I remember. Cool. People that go the extra mile. All right. Yep. Let's get back to whole language. Do you need to give us that definition first before we jump in? Yeah. So, you know, the, the listener asked about whole word reading and then there's whole language. They're, they're very similar. Whole language is something that started actually in the 70s and then was all the rage in the 80s and 90s. Um, veteran teachers like me will remember... Reggie Routman, Lucy Calkins, Nancy Atwell, they were all uh, proponents of this whole language theory where we teach students from the top down. What that means is we start with a book. We start with an experience. And I know from my experience in first grade, I would read a book. Um, one of my favorite whole language lessons was a book by Ellen Stoll Walsh called Mouse Paint. And it was about three mice and a cat. And all of them were white. The mice were white. The cat was white. And so the, the mice would jump in different paint colors, and then they'd mix the red and dance in the yellow with their feet. So you can imagine how that's going with secondary colors. And we did a really cool reading lesson where the kids would take thumbprints of the primary colors and then mix them with the secondary colors and make a book about mice. So we did a lot of math with that, a lot of reading with that. So you see how it, it evolves from a book into the teaching methods throughout that the teacher can do based on that piece of literature. Well, again, wanting to touch on something you've already talked about uh, that I, I'm fixated on, this, uh, this curriculum, scripted curriculum. Can energy matters affect curricu uh, scripted curriculum? I mean, do they go hand in hand at all, or, or is it a complete and total, you know, non sequitur, I guess? 
No, I, I've seen it. I, I, you know, again, I observe my students at the College of Charleston and I've seen scripted. I've seen scripted and non-scripted. And the energy from a teacher comes through either one. It's how the presentation, you know, your, your inflection, your tone, your facial expressions, your excitement. Yeah, you can read a script and be monotone and you can read a script and be engaged and exciting. So it's really the teacher can bring a lot to either. I think it would be a good time for you to, we can touch on some of our, our previous guests who brought a level of energy and, and I encourage you, if you fear hearing us for the first time, go back and listen to these other podcasts. They'll always have tremendous value. We have some guests that really bring it to the classroom. Give us an example of a couple of them who've come in here, who have really impressed you with what they do in the classroom. Well, of course, you know, I love Terry Hawes. She's a local realtor and she is just amazing with marketing. She is all about relationships, which in a classroom, the energy is about building relationships with your students. You know, I always like to say, and I'll say it again, they don't care how much you'll, you, they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And um, Terry exudes that. She cares about all her customers. You know, I bought a house 11 years ago and I still get mailings from her that are, just keeping that relationship alive. Her energy is infectious. You know, Jeff Jordan, a drama teacher at Ashley River, my students or my children to this day still talk about him and they're in their 20s. So, you know, them and of course, Tracy Hunter Doniger, you know, my boss at the College of Charleston, she's a great professor for future teachers and really shows them by, by her own actions how important it is and how impactful it is to have that energy in front of the classroom. So how do you teach somebody energy? I, I, maybe I've asked you this before, but it seems like you're either born with it or you're not. Is that a fair question? It's fair. Statement? I, I, I do think it's fair, but I will tell you, I've worked in a lot of school districts where the energy was pretty low, if, if even existent. And when you go into those districts and you're chatting around a table and you're asking them questions about their students and what they love about their school district and what they're most proud of this past school year and really getting them to look deep inside themselves for some nugget of amazingness. They light up. They The energy comes out when they start reflecting on why they became a teacher in the first place, what the potential is for those students and how they can impact that. The energy comes out when you really have a reason for doing so. And, you know, I will say I, I, it's tough to teach, but it's easy to show. So really, this is a message to the administrators. If an administrator is, you know, on board, they can empower these teachers to bring that maybe hidden creativity out. And that's when we see change. And that's when we experience a big difference. Absolutely. Administrators, leadership, it starts there. Yeah. Definitely. Here's a question out of left field. It seems like uh, the whole country is going through a big teacher shortage right now. Why is it so hard to attract teachers to the profession? Well, you know, we don't pay them enough. Number one, you know, a lot of the teachers I know have second and third jobs. They cannot be the primary breadwinner in a family. Um, you know, not that anyone goes into teaching for the money. I'm not saying that at all. But, it, you know, you have to make a living. You have to make a living wage. You have to be able to pay a mortgage and have a car payment. I think that's a big deal. Um, and I think a lot of it is, is what's put on these teachers. I think they get out of college with this kind of Pollyanna view of what it will be like. They have great professors like Tracy Hunter Doniger, and they're super excited. And, and then they, they kind of hit a brick wall. And that's why I think it's really important for them to do their due, due diligence before they accept a job. 
research that school, research that administration. Sure, it could change. The principal could leave. Maybe you sign on and the principal's gone next year. You know, no one can can change that fact, but you really need to know where you're going because administration makes a huge deal difference. So what can a teacher do if they wind up, uh, they're all excited, this new opportunity comes along and maybe it, it's not as it was advertised and now they're stuck in a school where maybe they're not allowed to be as creative and engaging uh, in the classroom. What can they do at that point? Are they stuck or are there ways of gently manipulating the administration so that we can get what we need done? Well, there's a couple ways. I mean, that's one way. That's a slow process. That's turning a barge. Um, finding your network. I like that. <laughs> finding your people within your school. You're, you always, you're going to find your people and you're going to gravitate toward them. And actually, I'm glad you asked that question. I didn't even tee you up for that. But that's something I'm looking for in the future is to have kind of a boot camp, something we can meet with teachers on a Zoom or in a school and kind of have these therapy sessions where we talk things through and strategize ideas. And, you know, if you can't leave that school and, you know, you maybe you don't want to leave your students in the middle of the school year, you know, I respect that. Let's find some strategies and talk through it and, you know, get through that year and then decide what's best for you. So if there are any educators listening to this now who are in that situation, uh, you'd be a great sounding board if they communicate, would. you, wouldn't you? Yeah. And when I go to districts and I do a workshop. It's about a 45-minute to an hour workshop. They do they do kind of start talking about things and asking questions, and it does turn into a little bit of therapy. But yeah, I'm here. I would love to help people. Well, you're one of these people that you can tell if somebody's you know having a problem or they're sad, whatever, you get it out of them. And you're, you seem to be that easy person to talk to. I know. I should have been a therapist. Well, <laughs> let's start right now. I think I owe you some money for past <laughs> sessions. Uh, I just want to remind you that you're listening to Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski, the show that highlights and celebrates the kinetic and potential energy in classrooms across the globe and why it matters. We're here na heard nationally wherever fine podcasts are available and weekly on the radio at Charleston, South Carolina's 1250 WTMA Sunday mornings at 8 uh, from right here at our home base in Charleston, South Carolina. And I encourage you, and Robin encourages you, visit thelearningring.com where you'll find access to opportunities to ask questions, uh, to recommend guests, uh, and bring anything to mind that we need to know about. And, and this really is, it's a very simple process. Robin reviews everything that comes in, robin at thelearningring.com. I can promise you she's an amazing communicator and bragging about you. Thank you. While you're sitting here. I'm being I'm, quiet so you can keep talking. I'm an amazing communicator. <laughs> and and I can tell you again from my standpoint, she just wants the best for everybody. And and she brings it. And the, the guests that have paraded through here, all incredibly positive people. So if you have not listened to other podcasts, this is the first one. I encourage you to go back through the library and listen to them. Take them with you when you're out walking. Uh, tell people about us. Uh, tell us about Instagram and Facebook. Yep, the Learning Ring on Instagram, the Learning Ring on Facebook. You'll find lots of fun highlights and stories and ways to win some fun prizes. And we do give away prizes. We do. I think that's terrific. All right. We uh, we appreciate your involvement and in listening to us today. Uh, Robin, I know you and I both get such a kick out of this program. And you folks at home, thanks for listening. Thanks for making us so popular. We'll see you next time on Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski.